Northampton, Easter's coming, and you better hide those eggs. Because the vegan police are going to be jumping out of your Easter baskets wearing bunny suits and kicking some factory egg farm ass. That's right. It's time for another amazing episode of... creator of the comic Bizarro and an animal rights activist who keeps us laughing in spite of our pain. And our existential angst. We will also have some music and an interview from Leanne Bross, a vegan musician who works at Mooshoes in New York City, where I actually just got some very cool boots last weekend. Look out. And as always, we have some interesting news stories that will make you glad you're a vegan. If you aren't one yet, Easter's a great day to roll away the stone, let the animals out of your tomb-like belly, so they can be born again into a peaceful and humane world. And if you're a Jewish like Jesus was, remember to pass over animal flesh in your diet. That's what JC would do, after all. You don't have to give me your fish stories, either, because they're all fishy. (laughs) (laughs) All right, you ready for the news? I'm ready for the news. All right, here we go. The Naked News. So we've got Omega-3 pork products, a Canadian company selling bacon that it makes rich with Omega-3 fatty acids by raising pigs on Omega-3 diets. Omega-3 compounds are polyunsaturated fatty acids that may reduce the risk of heart disease in people. They're found naturally in some fish and nuts and are deemed by government agency Health Canada to be an essential part of a person's diet. What kind of nuts have uh, omega-3? Walnuts. Berry Orchard, which is based in Winnipeg, Manitoba, researched hog feed for six years before it started selling the product in 2004. The company sells about 55,000 pounds of pork cuts, sausage and bacon weekly, to small grocery stores in three Canadian provinces and aims to expand its market to the rest of the country as well as Japan, China, and the U.S. Prairie Orchard Farms buys hogs that are fed flax that naturally contains the omega-3 fatty acids and a secret combination of vitamins and minerals. Higher production costs raise the purchase price about 25% above conventional pork. In the good old U.S. of A., there's even more disturbing news. A group of university researchers claim that they've created cloned pigs that make their own omega-3 fatty acids. For years, people have been urged to eat fish rich in omega-3 fatty acids. But fish can be expensive, so not everyone likes it, and omega-3s are in greatest abundance in oily fish like tuna, which contains mercury. That nutritional conundrum led a group of scientists from Harvard Medical School, the University of Missouri, and the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center to think of modifying pigs. The cloning work was done by Randall S. Prather, a pig cloning expert in the University of Missouri, who used genetically modified pig cells to create the five cloned pigs that had the gene in every cell of their bodies and made their own omega-3 fatty acids in their muscles. Sounds like a sick bastard. (laughs) It's true. What resulted were five white piglets with muscle tissue larded with omega-3 fatty acids. Might Mm. be loaded, I think. Larded. Um, They live at the University of Missouri in individual pens with fiberglass railed sides, concrete floors, and black foam pads for beds. Does not sound very comfortable for pigs. No, I'm not sure if that's their natural environment or not. (laughs) It is now. Pigs are often used to study heart disease, and the cloned pigs offer a new opportunity, Dr. Prother said. Instead of comparing human populations who happen to eat or not eat foods with abundant omega-3, scientists can ask their question directly. 
Compared with pigs without the omega-3 fatty acids, do these cloned pigs have a reduced heart attack risk, or don't they? Government approval for such genetically modified foods is certain to face monumental opposition from some consumer groups. Some that doesn't are, stop them anyway. I know. Some already object to feeding farm animals genetically modified grain and genetically modifying the animals themselves, and cloning them would be an even greater abomination. Alexander Leaf, an emeritus professor of clinical medicine at Harvard, said he was confident that pork and other foods with omega-3s would eventually get to American consumers and they would be better for it. People can continue to eat their junk food, Dr. Leaf said. You won't have to change your diet, but you'll be getting what you need. Oh, that's the whole that's, problem with, <laughs> with why everyone's so fat. That's the American uh, solution. Overconsumption. Yep. So now... So the, wait... Oh, my gosh. You've got some side notes, you I see. You've got to make this news last a while. You know, you're rushing through it like we're in a race or something. I'm a race. It is a race. <laughs> Just slow down. Breathe. It's a vegan race, and I'm going to win. <laughs> yeah. You're the Ruth Heydrich of the news. It's true. Let's see. Um, <clears throat> so I have some data on omega-3. Oh, I can't wait to hear so it. I think we should talk about omega-3 because our listeners might not know all the facts. Okay. Like that. Flax is a more potent source than animal flesh. It's true. The problem with most fish, as we know, is that it's highly toxic. You know, they tell pregnant women they shouldn't. They eat do it. if you're pregnant not to eat fish. And that's because um, the toxins in your body accumulate in your fat, and then pregnant women uh, lose. And mercury is one of the big toxins and that we all know is not good for us. Comes out in breast milk, so you're yeah. All the toxins you eat go right into your baby. This pig flesh, you know, it's still going to be fat. The other thing is that, you know, diets high in fat are still bad. The healthiest diet is a low-fat, plant-based diet. Rich with complex carbohydrates. Yeah, not bread. White bread and white flour and white sugar. True, true. So your little side note is done? I think so. All right. (laughs) Good job, Darlique. I'm going to throw the paper at you. (laughs) Fortunately, I've been working out, listeners, so... Don't worry, I'll take care of him later. Vegetarianism gives me deadly aim. He'll step outside. Deadly accuracy. He'll step outside into my office where I'll take care of him. (laughs) But not. I mean, we're just joking around because here at Vegan Radio, we don't um, advocate for any real violence. Right. Just a little. uh, Little um, spanking here and there. A little takedown. In hand. A little. uh, Wrestling takedown is okay, though. (laughs) Okay, on to our next story. The good news and the bad news from the United Kingdom. First, the good news. New UK guidance on food labeling for vegans and vegetarians builds on growing consumer demand for non-meat ingredients. The guidance, drawn up by the Food Standards Agency, after consultation with stakeholders, including the Vegetarian Society and the Vegan Society, will provide criteria for the use of the terms vegetarian and vegan on food labels for the first time. Food safety fears have led to the emergence of a new market in vegetarian ingredients. Scares such as mad cow disease and avian flu have prompted consumers and marketers to cast about for non-meat alternatives. The UK's Vegetarian Society says that the number of vegetarians tend to peak in the immediate aftermath of an animal health scare, but drop back down to prior levels afterwards. Overall vegetarianism has followed a steady upwards curve over the past decade. A 2002 report estimated that there are around 12 million vegetarians across Europe. George Roger, chair of the Vegan Society, said, 
Quote, as more and more foods have become available in packaged form, vegans have had to become accustomed to reading long lists of ingredients to see whether or not a product is suitable for them. The new food labeling guidance from the Food Standards Agency will make things so much easier. If a product is labeled suitable for vegans in accordance with this guidance, they need look no further. Of course, if you just buy fruits and vegetables in the produce section, you don't have to read you might labels. Be, you might be okay. <laughs> <laughs> Unless they've put they some strange animal gene. gene, you know, into the tomatoes. So organic, organic fruit. Which is actually... Organic locally grown is the best. But that's actually true. Isn't it true that they've come up with tomatoes where they put some kind of animal gene in, into yeah, the tomatoes fish. so that they're not, it is fish, so that they're not as mushy? Mushy. Disgusting. They have okay. scales instead. And now for the bad news. UK set to imprison free-range poultry. Tony Blair's top scientific advisor yesterday warned that the arrival of bird flu may herald the end of organic and free-range poultry. Sir David King said it was likely the deadly H591 virus will spread among the UK's wild bird population. That will mean more poultry flocks have to be kept inside to reduce the risk of infection from mixing with them. It means organic farming and free-range farming would come to an end. It will change farming practices. But one of the country's leading bird flu experts disagreed about the risk to poultry. Professor John Oxford called for urgent action to track down silent carriers of the disease, saying it was vital to discover how a swan found with H591 in Scotland had been infected. He also called on the government to double the cash spent on testing labs. Meanwhile, government officials yesterday tried to reassure the public eating chickens and eggs is still safe, while at the same time urging people to avoid handling dead birds and to be careful among poultry. The Transport and General Workers Union has called on the UK's poultry industry to vaccinate workers and their families as a precaution. So it's a classic uh, case of confinement of the birds is what created the disease. And now they're using the disease to justify the further confinement of birds, kind of the way uh, you know, 911 was used to tighten down our boundaries in our so-called free society. Know what I mean there, Megzi? I do know what you mean. Why are you giving me dirty looks? Down with the government. It's all in your head. Derek's having hallucinations today, listeners. I know this microphone makes me sound like I have a lisp, and I don't know why you're giving me dirty looks. I actually think you do have a little lisp. I don't think I do. Maybe you have a cackle. I know. I think I'd rather have a lisp. Unfortunately, you're not as clear of a speaker as I am. It's true, but you'll have to just practice a little bit more. I don't know. Well, I don't know. Um, I don't know how else to help you. I've done all I can. <laughs> I, th- I think it's it's working to the corporation's advantage if they can uh, get rid of organic and free range farming. You know, yeah. Make sure they can keep their inhumane and cheap uh, factory farms. Yep, they always want justifications for what they're doing. Very insidious. Now we're on to our next story. Barbecue meat may cause prostate cancer. Ouch. Spring is here, and the omnivores are getting ready to bust out their grills and fill the fresh air with the stench of burning flesh. This is the only time that many men acculturated in our patriarchal society cook any type of so-called food. Barbecuing (laughs) is a stereotypically male activity, along with fishing, hunting, and warmongering. 
I yeah, ask maybe. you, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I ask you, listeners. When will our species evolve enough to give up the barbaric practices of oppression we now glorify? Here, here. Maybe God could create a disease to let the followers who believe they were made in His image know that their very manliness is at risk from behaving violently towards, towards other members of His creation. It just so turns out that a compound formed when meat is charred at high temperatures, as in barbecue, encourages the growth of prostate cancer. The compound, called PHIP, is formed when meat is cooked at very high temperatures, Dr. Angelo DiMarzo and colleagues at John Hopkins University in Baltimore reported in a recent study. Unfortunately for everyone, the study was conducted on rats, which is another classic example of humans violently using animals' bodies against their will to find out what might kill people. DeMarzo said the researchers stumbled across a new potential interaction between ingestion of cooked meat in the diet and cancer in the rat. Members of her team mixed PHIP into food given to rats for up to eight weeks, then studied the animal's prostates, intestines, and spleens. They found genetic mutation in all the organs after four weeks. Of course, rats and humans are quite different, and so the study really only points towards the possibility of humans having the same result. DeMarzo says that for humans, the biggest problem is that it, it's extremely difficult to tell how much PHIP is ingested, since different amounts are formed depending on cooking conditions. The Great China Study by Dr. T. Colin Campbell, as well as n- numerous other studies of human population, have already proven a link between the consumption of animal protein and several types of cancer, including prostate. So the rats were given cancer for no good reason, other than to make headlines. Hopefully, these headlines will get some people to reconsider their grilling of dead animal flesh. We we recommend instead grilling some marinated tofu, veggie kebabs, Mm. corn on the cob, baked potatoes, barbecue tempeh, and or pineapple slices. Now, that's a sweet smell in the air. Eat healthy and keep the cancer away from your crotch. Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of walnuts, you know, uh, (laughs) what is the prostate? What is the prostate? Yeah. It's very. Cl- it's in a man's body, <laughs> and I know it's, it's a small gland about the size of a walnut. Yes. Where is the prostate located? Underneath the bladder and in front of the rectum. That's why the prostate exam is. <laughs> the doctor inserts a gloved, lubricated finger into a man's anus. So Derek, where are you going with this? I'm reading uh, facts from the internet about the prostate, in case our listeners don't know where they're going to get cancer. Are you sure you just didn't want to say anus? If I wanted to say anus, I would have just said anus. Do you know what the prostate does? Um, it makes and stored, stores fluid that is part of semen. Uh, the fluid is released from a man's penis during ejaculation. So, do you know why? <laughs> why don't you ruffle your papers a little more? <laughs> One in six men will have prostate problems, not necessarily cancer. Prostate cancer is the most common cancer that men get in the United States behind skin cancer. It is estimated that during the 2002 in the United States, there were 189,000 new cases of prostate cancer and 30,200 deaths. So there you have it. Isn't it kind of interesting that barbecuing a manly activity causes manly problems? I do think it's very ironical, as my mother would say. (laughs) Almost like karma exists or something. I know, it's true. There is karma. Okay, go ahead with your rant. All right. In other cancer news, arsenic is a common food additive for chickens. It may be called the king of poisons, but it's everywhere, in the environment, in the water we drink, and sometimes in the food we eat. 
The amount is not enough to kill anyone in one fell swoop, but arsenic is a recognized cancer-causing agent, and many experts say that no level should be considered safe. Arsenic may also contribute to other life-threatening illnesses, including heart disease and diabetes, and to a decline in mental functioning. Have you? Do you think you've had too much arsenic in your food? Who, me? <laughs> <laughs> Probably when I lived with you and you were trying to poison me. <laughs> Yet it's deliberately being added to chicken in this country, with many scientists saying it's unnecessary. Until recently, there was a very high chance that if you ate chicken, some arsenic would be present because it has been a government-approved additive in poultry feed for decades. It's used to kill parasites and to promote growth. The chicken industry's largest trade group says that arsenic levels in its birds are safe. We're not aware of any study... We're not aware of any study that shows implications of any possibility of harm to human health as a result of the use of these products at the levels directed. Nothing to see here. Said Richard Lobb, a spokesman for the National Chicken Council. (laughs) Chickens are not... I'm the National Chicken Spokesman. (laughs) (laughs) Everything is okay. Chickens are not the only environmental source of arsenic. In addition to drinking water, for which the Environmental Protection Agency now sets a level of 10 parts per billion... Other poultry, rice, fish, and a number of foods also contain the poison. Soils are contaminated with arsenical pesticides from chicken manure. Chicken litter containing arsenic is fed to other animals. And until 2003, arsenic was used in pressure-treated wood for decks and playground equipment. Human exposure to it has been compounded because the consumption of chicken has exploded. In 1960, each American ate 28 pounds of chicken a year. For 2005, the figure is estimated at about 87 pounds per person. In spite of this three-fold rise, the FDA tolerance level for arsenic in chicken of 500 parts per billion decades ago has not been revised. A 2004 Department of Agricultural study on arsenic concluded that the higher than previously recognized concentrations of arsenic in chicken, combined with increasing levels of chicken consumption, may indicate a need to review assumptions regarding overall ingested arsenic intake. Arsenic, like other toxins, is stored in fat cells and accumulates over time, which is extra troubling since one of the few ways the body gets rid of it is through breastfeeding. In the Wallinga study, the chicken from Purdue, Foster Farms, and Golden Plump tested positive <laughs> for arsenic, and the companies acknowledged that they sometimes use it. Golden Plump arsenic-flavored chicken. Trader Joe's samples also tested positive for arsenic, but the com- company said it would have no comment. McDonald's, the, the country's largest fast food chain, said it does not use chicken with arsenic, but the test revealed the presence of more than incidental amounts. Liars. Perhaps the chickens were purchased before the company started demanding arsenic-free chickens a couple of years ago. Perhaps they're lying corporate scum. I have to say, I think I agree with the latter. And now, for a tale of an animal striking back. These are always my favorite stories. <laughs> That's why I put them in there for you. I know. Crazy cat with six toes terrorizes Connecticut. Residents of a neighborhood in Fairfield, Connecticut, say a crazy cat named Lewis has terrorized them. The town's animal control officer has personally issued Lewis a restraining order. <laughs> a neighbor claimed that Lewis looks like Felix the cat and has six toes on each foot, each with a long claw. <laughs> the neighbor said those formidable weapons, along with cat-like stealth, have allowed Lewis to attack at least a half dozen people and ambush the Avon lady as she was getting out of her car. <laughs> Uh, 
We have to get an interview with Lewis. <laughs> so, or just uh, stick them on some people we don't like. Some of those who were bitten and scratched ended up seeking treatment at area hospitals. Animal Control Officer Rachel Silvera placed a restraining order on Lewis. It was the first time such an action was taken against a cat in Fairfield. Lewis is currently under house arrest, forbidden to leave it his won't home. Be the last. <laughs> Silvera also arrested the cat's the owner. Cats are coming. Silvera also arrested the cat's owner, Ruth Cicero, charging her with failing to comply with the restraining order and reckless endangerment. Oh, those stories are so funny. It does not top the cat who called 911, though. No. That is my all time favorite maybe story. Maybe cats are becoming more intelligent and uh, I think so. getting ready to take over the world. The evolution of cats. You know that book, Why Cats Paint, right? <laughs> They're pretty good of artists. Of course, there's Why Cats <laughs> Dance as well, so you should check both of those out. Artists and dancers. Um, I have an announcement to make. Farm Sanctuary is having their 20th year anniversary gala this year, and they're trying to get all the tickets sold. It's a pretty high-profile, high-flutin' event this year. Honorary chairs are Daryl Hanna and Heather Mills McCartney are going to be there. Alicia Silverstone's going to be there. Moby? Is Moby going to be there? Yes, Moby will be there, as well as Dennis Kucinich, who are local, local new liberal lovely, love. Lovely wife who's half his age. She's very lovely. Love knows no boundaries. It's true. And let's see, we have some other celebrities that some people may have heard of. <laughs> Grant Alexander, who we know is a soap opera star. Thora Birch. What was she in? Thora Birch? Um... He... Um, David Scott, Scott seems to know. What was she in? American Beauty. American Beauty. Beauty. Was she the one with the blonde hair or she was the one with the dark hair? Dark. The one with the dark hair. Did I say Persia White? <laughs> Derek's <laughs> favorite. Derek's obsessed with Persia I White. I am not. Yes, you are. I'm obsessed with beauty and all its manifestations. Manifestations. Emily Osuko, the fine artist. Emily DeChannel. I don't know who she is. Lisa Edelstein. Don't read names that people don't know. Then they're not going to well, be interested. Um, some people do know. That's oh. why I'm reading them. Okay. I mean, we, we know nothing. We, know, we don't watch TV. so Right. Well, we know these are the people on the cover of People magazine or something. Well, and the tickets are... Kelly Kate Eisenberg. We know her. She's like a child star, right? Dave Foley, Greg German, Jill Larson, Peter Max, the artist, Moby... Shelley Morrison, Piper Parabo, Dan Peraro, who we have on the show today, Eric Roberts, Ellie Sheedy. What, what was Ellie Sheedy in? Ellie Sheedy? <laughs> she was in High Art and Breakfast The Breakfast Club. Club. Loretta Swift from MASH Hot Lips. Loretta Swit. Swit. Isn't it? Megan took over the title of Hot Lips after she retired. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> Joanne Van Ark, Kelly Williams, Deborah Wilson, and many more. And all this, so what they do is, this is in New York City at the, um, where is it? I don't know. It's at some fancy hotel. If you go to farmsanctuary.org or our show notes at veganradio.com, you can find out. It's $300 a ticket. It's quite pricey, but that does include a fine, fine vegan gourmet meal with a fine, fine vegan dessert. Free course gourmet vegan dinner. And then there's also an art auction and a bunch of other stuff, so... Um, it's really a great thing, and, and you know, the $300 might seem excessive, but it's going to help animals. It's not going to some corporate bigwig. 
It's not going to uh, President Bush. This is Dan Perraro, creator of Bizarro. You're listening to Vegan Radio. And if you're eating a bologna sandwich right now, spit it out. That crap can kill you. Dan Perraro is the artist who does the comic strip Bizarro, nationally syndicated. He's got a new book out called Bizarro and Other Strange Manifestations of the Art of Dan Perraro. Did I say that correctly? <laughs> you started out a little, a little slow, but uh, I think you came out in the end. My manif- manifestation destiny. Um, so, and he is a very funny guy. He does political cartoons and regular cartoons, kind of like in the style of Farside, with just one, one comic square that he puts all that funniness in. <laughs> <laughs> He's a really funny guy, sweet guy. And whenever I've hung out with him, he always has me in stitches. And he'll be doing a routine at the uh, Farm Sanctuary Gala, so get your tickets. Go to that. If you need a ride, give us a call. Maybe we'll do a Northampton bus or something. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go, Dan Perraro. I was, uh, I guess I was always, uh, I come from a funny family. And uh, I was always uh, the class clown in school, I suppose. And then as an adult... I started uh, in my 20s looking for a way to make a living as an artist. And I got into commercial art. I found that really fairly reprehensible, <laughs> advertising art. And uh, fine art didn't didn't have enough money in it uh, right off the bat to keep me going. And so I ended up in, uh, I, sh- I, I kind of shifted gears and, and combined my sense of humor with my uh, art talent and became a cartoonist, started sending cartoons off to newspaper syndication companies and uh, eventually got uh, signed to a syndication contract and I've been doing that for 20 years now. Uh, How did you become involved in animal rights? Uh, That was actually a very roundabout way. Probably five years ago if somebody had told me that I would be a vegetarian, much less a vegan, and an animal rights advocate, I would have just laughed in their face. At that time I thought that vegans and vegetarians and animal rights people were just uh, basically hippies with too much free time um but uh the truth is i didn't know anything about it and um i met a woman who who uh, eventually i married and uh, began dating her and she'd been involved in that stuff uh, kind of intuitively since she was a kid and so by hanging around with her and, and um, meeting the people i met and seeing the the, the brochures and reading the uh, information uh, I, I discovered about factory farming which I had never even heard of before I, I discovered a lot about uh, the way dairy farms are run and their connection to to the veal calves and just the whole deal I just started finding out all uh, the truth about animal agriculture and I was sickened by it I was just completely repulsed and then when I met um, I went to farm sanctuary one weekend with her up in Watkins Glen, New York. And when I met these rescued animals in a non-stressed environment and saw how sweet and affectionate and wonderful they are uh, and and how varied and different their personalities are, I was just, uh, I I was amazed. I had tears in my eyes. I thought, oh my God, what have I been subsidizing all these years with my diet and and, uh, just not knowing and not caring about other species and that day, I think I truly lost my sense of entitlement over other species. And I, uh, I realized that um, they're just... They're, the only reason I was doing the things I was doing was out of ignorance. I, I ate animals because they tasted good. 
pure and simple. I didn't need them for survival. I didn't need them for health. God knows. Um, I, I I didn't need them. Uh, the 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 only reason I did it was because they tasted good, and I thought I can't. This this all happened just sort of in a matter of seconds, a culmination of of all these uh, maybe just weeks of of information gathering, or maybe even months, but. Just all of a sudden, within seconds, it came rushing to me. Do I really want to? Do I really want to subsidize torture and murder for the sake of flavor, for the sake of a few minutes of uh, 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 sensory pleasure on my tongue? And I, I just I lost my sense of entitlement over other animals, and I just quit on the spot. And um, I've I've never I can honestly say I've never been happier. It was a frightening decision at first, and I thought, uh, oh my god, this is going to be so hard. But it wasn't as hard as I thought it would be. Uh, it was much more rewarding than I thought it would be. Yeah, I've never regretted it for a second. Never been tempted to go back. So that was about four years ago now. So you have a national platform with your cartoons that appear in syndicated papers across the country. It seems like you regularly make cartoons with animal rights issues embedded into the humor. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I... I um my cartoons are, have have traditionally just been about humor, just been about making people smile or laugh or amusing people, amusing the readers, whatever. But they have also occasionally been about things that I uh, felt strongly about, and I intentionally try to go that direction because I think it makes for a better cartoon. I think it makes for better art. Anytime a person can put themselves and their beliefs into their art, it's uh, it makes for a better product, better experience. For the for the viewer or listener or whatever the case may be, so I do I try to do that intentionally. Put put myself into my cartoons and my beliefs. And this this particular topic is very difficult. Occasionally, I'll throw politics or something in there, and and that's hard enough. But making jokes uh, that that educate people or or alert people to animal cruelty is not an easy trick. You know, it's just—it's like trying to write a stand-up comedy routine about pedophilia or something. It, it's just—you it, know—the abuse of innocence is not funny. So it was a pretty difficult thing to do, and, and it took me a long time. It took me months and months of thinking about it and sort of working on different cartoon ideas before I could come up with any kind of a system. And little by little, I, I think I've kind of gotten better at it over the last few years. But little by little, I started to find a voice. I started to find a way to get some of these ideas across and and admittedly they're not they're not hysterical cartoons but they're but they're poignant or they're interesting or they're amusing in some way they're sarcastic and i find that it's enough to to justify putting them in my in my cartoons from time to time and anyway so that's what i do i was recently on the PETA 2 website and i saw that you're on there now um are you doing a weekly thing for them or is it yeah, those are, uh, like, like many websites, those are just um, cartoons that have run in Bizarro that have been uh, animal rights-themed or, or vegetarian or you know, uh, nutrition and diet-themed. You know, when they see one that they like, they, they just write to me and say, can we use this one on the website? And, and I say, yeah. And I, I, I end up giving a lot of different groups, uh, magazines, websites, different things. I, I end up donating a lot of cartoons to... Uh, I, I virtually never turn anyone down. If it's a decent... If it if it's a if if it's a well run organization with a with a great idea behind it, you know any any of the kind of vegan animal rights stuff, any of those guys want to use my cartoons, I always let them do it because it's it's just good to get the message out. It's the thing is it's a win 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 situation. It's better for the environment. It's better for people's health. It's better for the animals. I mean, there's no downside to it. The downside is 
you don't get a mouthful of barbecued pork every now and then, which is a pretty minor downside when you consider all the great things that come from uh, being vegan. So, you know, I, I, I always try to just promote it in, in any way that I can, everywhere that I can. Um, not like a religion, really, but but it's a, it's a very strong uh, ethical belief. And it's also, you know, recently I went to a medical convention which had nothing to do with animal rights. These guys were, were strictly talking about nutrition and the, the sort of bogus diets that are out there and the kind of connections that nutrition has to heart attacks and stroke and cancers and muscular dystrophy and diabetes and virtually every non-contagious, mysterious disease that human beings get that no other animal gets. And right down to the last one, basically the reason is because we eat the wrong things. If, if you, know, you take any wild animal and feed it the wrong diet, it begins to get bizarre diseases just like we do. Uh, sh- sure enough, the, uh, the answer is that human beings are herbivores, and when you feed us plants and grains and vegetables and that sort of thing, you know, we do great. We don't get fat, we don't get sick, um, and uh, we don't die of mysterious, debilitating conditions and syndromes and diseases. And you feed us the wrong things, and we do, just like any beast on the planet. So, anyway, it's, it's very, it's, it was very cool stuff. It was an interesting seminar. Do you want to tell us about your new book? Uh, no, the new book is a secret. Oh, really? <laughs> no, the new book is not a secret. It's uh, yeah, I do want to. I very badly want to tell you about the new book. Um, I'm actually really proud of this book. This is uh, it came from. Uh, it's being published by Abrams Books, which is the the premier art book publisher in the country, and um, it, it's a retrospective of my entire career called. Bizarro and Other Strange Manifestations of the Art of Dan Perraro. It's got uh, um, cartoons. It's got, uh, it covers my entire career. Cartoons, fine art, sketchbook art, uh, stuff from my comedy shows. It has a 10,000-word essay, autobiographical essay, where I talk about my life and, and various aspects of my beliefs and how I came to to uh, some of these ideas about politics and about um uh, animal rights, environment, uh, you know, nutritional health, that kind of thing. And um, anyway, so it's a it's a it's a it's a very cool book, and I'm I'm going to go on tour this spring with my comedy show. I also have a one man comedy show that's basically about my cartoon career, and um, so I'm going to go on tour with that and uh, to help uh, publicize the book. So you're going to be on the West Coast, touring around L.A. and Portland and all that, and then going to Texas. Yeah, I start out in um, on April 13th in Los Angeles, and then I go up to um, the Bay Area. A few days after that, I play Santa Cruz, uh, San Francisco, Berkeley, Mill Valley, and then up to Eugene, Oregon, which is a college town, apparently. Never been there. Um, Portland, and then Seattle. And then the following month in May, I, I'm going to go up through the Midwest, probably to Austin, Texas, Dallas then Tulsa, Oklahoma, because that's where I'm from, and my entire family is still there. Um, uh, not not a major stop on most of your comedy tours, but in this case, I'm making a stop in Tulsa. Then Kansas City, then Chicago, and uh, probably a bunch more cities to, to come after that, but those are the ones that I've booked so far. So you do some stand-up routines at animal rights conferences and things. Uh, do you have a specific act set up just to cater to the animal rights movement? Um, sort of, more or less. That's actually a, a, an odd sideline that came from all this. Uh, because I've done some public speaking and performance, uh, 
before I, I, I began, um, I guess I should back up a little bit. As soon as I started doing cartoons about animal rights and, and, and uh, veganism and factory farming, um, well, uh, immediately I attracted the attention of other people who care about those issues because it, these are issues that just don't get into the press very often, uh, mainstream or entertainment press or anything. So as soon as I started doing it, I became, actually very quickly became popular in that circle. So then I would, I would, uh, and, and, and we also, my wife and I also tend, she's a full-time activist, and we tend to show up at these uh, various conventions and fundraisers. And uh, little by little, I got, to, I got to the point where people were asking me to speak or entertain at these various functions. And so, yeah, now I've just become kind of the, the comic of choice for a lot of fundraisers and, and uh, I don't know, like uh, uh, galas and and uh, conferences and different, uh, sometimes these uh, uh, vegetarian festivals will ask me to come speak. And so it's become like this whole other sideline for me is to, I get asked to speak probably at least once a month all year long, you know, as far ahead as like 8 and 10 and 12 months in advance to speak at all these different things. And so I have sort of developed this, these basic uh, comedy routines about vegetarianism, veganism, animal rights, um, you know, just the the whole thing. I, again, not an easy thing to do because it's just not a funny topic. But, um, you know, you work at it long enough and you think about it and you start to come up with certain angles that work. Um, it's, it's, much, it's much easier to do that kind of humor in front of animal rights crowds, people who get it, than it is. You, can, you can't take that same humor, and I've tried this too. You can't take that very same humor and do it in front of just an average off-the-street comedy club crowd because it goes right over the heads. They don't get it. They don't understand. What are you talking about? Why would anyone want to consider the feelings of a chicken? I mean, you know, that, that kind of right off the bat just sounds comical. Um, yeah, people just don't get it. So there's a whole different, that's a different style of comedy that I have to do for those clubs, which I also, when I'm, when I'm just playing the basic animal rights clubs, I mean, when I'm just, <laughs> uh, animal rights clubs, when I'm just playing the basic comedy clubs, I will still work in a certain amount of animal rights issues but it's 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 uh, simpler easier to follow um less preachy because it just you know it has to be for the for the general public you, you you can't go anywhere near as deep but with uh with the animal rights folks it's, it's really fun and i'm pretty much i think i'm kind of one of the only people in the country doing that sort of stuff so all these all the animal rights organizations end up calling me to to speak at these events because there's kind of nobody else who does it everybody speaks you know but it's always very it's you know it comes along with with videotapes of of seals having their heads caved in with axes and stuff so it's just you know it's a real downer and inevitably they'll have that kind of videotape everybody in the audience is crying the speaker is pleading with everyone to help it stop and now some entertainment from dan Peraro, and i have to stand up and make people laugh <laughs> Which is, you know, it sounds like the worst situation possible, and but in truth, it actually ends up being kind of a good thing because people are so worn out, they're emotionally exhausted, and they want to laugh. So any little thing I can toss them, tidbit I can toss them, they just guffaw, you know, because as a release from all the misery and agony of the of whatever the conference was about or the or the previous speaker. So yeah, it's a it's a weird kind of emotional roller coaster ride. <laughs> Do you want to talk a little about your website and how people can uh, go discover you a little bit there? Uh, yeah, I have a, uh, I've had a website for years uh, just for my syndicated cartoon, which is bizarro.com, B-I-Z-A-R-R-O. If you spell it wrong, you'll get 
to some very strange websites. So you can either avoid that if you'd like or experiment with it and see where it takes you. But if you spell it correctly, you'll get to my website, bizarro.com. Uh, it's, it's been there for years promoting my cartoon, but I began uh, a few years ago, I began filling it with uh, some animation that I did, uh, with, some, with some of my animal rights cartoons, with a few little short essays about how I uh, arrived at my belief system and, and uh, why I think it's important. And the interesting thing is that I now will get uh, letters like you were talking about this drummer for a band that you that you know of, which I, I didn't I hadn't actually been aware of that yet. But this has happened to me a few times where someone has gone to my website because they like my cartoon, and then discovered all this information: are humans carnivores or herbivores? Here's why. Um, here's what happens in factory farming. Here's what the, you know they they get to, they get armed with all this information and decide to make uh, a lifestyle change. Say, wait a minute, I can't. I'm not going to just like I did a few years ago. I'm not going to subsidize these evil people and these evil deeds uh, for the sake of my a few seconds of, of uh, sensory pleasure. So I've, I've actually, ended up, the, the, the website has actually ended up converting a, a handful of people, I suppose, and, and maybe some more that I haven't heard from. But, but that's actually been a really cool uh, sideline. I, I just threw it up there because I believe in it. Um, and who knew whether it would work or not? But in fact, it is kind of working. Some, some people really are uh, touched and educated and changed by it. So that's cool. Do you want to talk anything about your connection to Woodstock and um, how you've been helping them raise funds? There have been a lot of unexpected benefits to becoming or you know, joining the animal rights movement or becoming an animal advocate. And one of them is the, the wonderful people that I've met. And I met Doug and Jenny at uh, uh, Farm Sanctuary, the original Farm Sanctuary up in uh, Watkins Glen, New York. A few years ago, and we all hit it off just great. My wife Ashley and I, and, and Doug and Jenny, and we started hanging out and becoming friends. And then they announced their plans to to buy this farm up here at Woodstock and open up their own sanctuary. And we just thought, oh, this is so great because we, you know, we'd love to have a place to come and and uh, help out with the animals and and do the whole farm thing, and then be able to go back to the city and you know someplace closer than Watkins Glen, which is like six hours travel time from New York City. So we were thrilled about it, and and you know we instantly just said let's you know let us help. We'll build fences, and so a lot of us come up here on the weekends, and or started out coming up here on the weekends and helping build the barns and fences and taking care of the animals. And we've taken care of the farm a few times when there were less uh, animals here than there are now. <laughs> we took care of the farm for them a few times when they went home to visit family for holidays, and uh, ended up being on the board with them, and um, the. Of course, one of the biggest things about being on the board is trying to find ways to raise funds to keep all these guys fed and and healthy. Uh, and uh, so I started um, giving them money from my uh, talks and from my uh, my speaking engagements and all my comedy shows. All the money that that I make beyond my travel expenses, uh, I give to the farm, and that's been sort of my main way of fundraising. I'm not particularly great at going door to door or planning posh cocktail parties and inviting rich people and trying to get them to give money but i can do these comedy shows and that's been a really it's been a really fun way to both spread the word about the farm and raise uh, a little bit of cash here and there to uh to keep the critters fed so that's that's been kind of a cool benefit to it as well okay so that was dan perraro from the bizarro comic strip and is Leanne on the line? I sure am. Hi. How's it going? Hi, Leanne. Oh, it's going great. Thanks so much for having me. So Leanne is right now working at 
Moo Shoes, the mm-hmm. coolest and only all-vegan shoe store in New York City. How's it oh. going there today? It's been really busy today because of the beautiful weather. I think it's brought a lot of people in. Are a lot of people buying boots? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's kind of weird how many people want to buy boots in 70-degree weather, but they look cool. So Those yeah. high black <laughs> boots, though, they're very popular. I just got a pair. Yeah, yeah, they're beautiful. Looking good. <laughs> so, and we are going to play your song, Coming of Age, um, you. after your interview. And how, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, you, um, this is kind of an odd uh, story, but have you ever seen uh, the movie Steve Zizou, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou? Oh, yeah. yeah. I watched that, and I thought the um, one of the things I loved about it was the music in that film. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, I couldn't sleep after having seen this movie. And I just started writing this kind of campy-sounding you know, simple, very simple song. And um, as I was trying to rewrite it, I realized, because I wanted to make it, you know, more artsy and whatever. Right. And I realized it kind of said everything I felt. And sometimes writing at three in the morning is, is good for that It's a good thing. thing. So then um, when I went up to Maine to have my friend Dan um, help me with the, the mix down, he added some more aquatic sounding noises in there, you know, like watery guitars and stuff and, and filled it out. And it's actually one of my favorites that I've done so far. Just about the... Um, how we're all connected, us to the planet and the animals. It's not real specific, but it's just generally says everything I wanted it to. So, so awesome. you were inspired by Luke and Owen Wilson? <laughs> <laughs> I am often inspired by Luke and Owen Wilson you know, and Ben okay. Stiller. <laughs> I'm more inspired by Bill Murray, but that's just me. Oh, yeah. Okay. He's, <laughs> he's, good, too. he's good, too. Yeah, yeah. Shout out to Bill Murray. Yep. <laughs> God. <laughs> I, I mean, I love humor, and I think people that can write clever songs that still make you think um that's my favorite kind of music to listen to i think that's important well vegan radio is a clever talk that can make you think yeah (laughs) we at least we strive for that oh you (laughs) you're wonderful (laughs) oh go on leanne go on (laughs) well i mean it's such a, a rare resource you know people really need more of this type of outreach where you're talking about music and politics and because everything really is kind of interconnected so i agree excellent point all right so we're gonna have to get the song playing or else they're gonna kick us out of here okay well we don't want that thank you so much (laughs) for the opportunity yeah it was great to talk to you and um we'll be seeing you in new york city soon i'm sure oh excellent look forward to it thanks so much bye leanne bye I woke up one day, realized that I was taller than I ever was. I was smaller than I've ever been, smarter than I ever was, but dumber than I'll ever be again. I came up from the underground, I had a great big look around, what I see, what I see. than I'll ever be, higher than I've ever been, but lower than I want to feel again. I'm more full of love now, I'm more full of hate somehow, questioning everyone's fate now and again. I came up one day. 
Thanks for joining us for another episode of Vegan Radio. To find out more about anything we talked about on the show, be sure to check out our show notes at www.veganradio.com. All the episodes of Vegan Radio are available to download on our website. You can also subscribe through the Vegan Radio podcast on our website, so it'll be delivered fresh to your computer every two weeks. Our live show streams are on the web at www.valleyfreeradio.org from noon until 1 p.m. Eastern time. Eastern time. It's Easter this weekend, though. On alternate Thursdays. While you're at the website, also check out our show forums and sign up for our email list so you can keep up with the latest news and happenings. We have forums set up for you to share news stories with us and have further discussions about topics we cover in the show. Let us know you're out there listening and what you would like to hear about on our future shows. We encourage our podcast listeners to write us a review at the Apple iTunes Music Store or at any other podcast site that you frequent. Vegan Radio is a production of Veganica.com and all content is copyrighted. Feel free to share our show with your friends. But if you want to steal them for your own nefarious purposes, you better watch out because the vegan police will find you. We're going to be wearing bunny suits this weekend. Watch out. (laughs) We'll see you in another two weeks for another episode of Vegan Radio.